because it's really like the ultimate like professional jealousy film mm. jesus christ like this kid just shows up he doesn't have to pledge his industry and his chastity he's just brilliant listening to the Bright Wall Darkroom podcast, a space where we belly up with critics, artists, and our magazine's contributors to speak from the heart about film. I'm Chad Perman. And I'm Fran Hoffner. Surprise! <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> Surprise, I'm here! I didn't know what to say there. Yes, so we should just uh, get that out of the way up top. Uh, our normal co-host Veronica Fitzpatrick was not able to join us today, so the wonderful Fran Hoffner is stepping in to fill her shoes. And so, hello, Fran. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so exciting to have you, and thank you for being the last-minute uh, fill-in here and being here to talk with us about Amadeus, which I know you love. I love. It's a combo of my two favorite invented genres, which is always mad at my one friend and prank war gone too far. <laughs> okay. No grad school angle on this one. Well... I guess in the way that like all movies about being creative are about going to grad school. <laughs> like two weeks ago when I found out this was going to be the film for the podcast, I was like, okay, it's sort of crazy they're doing this and I didn't get invited. <laughs> I had felt a little snubbed. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, Fran is our classical music expert. She has appeared many, many times on NPR talking about classical music. Actually, could you say a little bit about what you do and how you got involved in that? Yeah, absolutely. So I used to write a column for the now defunct all about classical music and trying to introduce kind of lay people and young people to classical music. I started playing piano when I was five, which I think is not maybe entirely uncommon. Hey, me too. And then that sort of spiraled into like being really involved in like youth orchestras and youth symphonies where I played mostly percussion, but a little bit of cello also. Oh, you played cello. I didn't know that. Yeah, for like four years. I really loved cello. Just a little cello for four years. Well, you know, and it was little because I was small too. I had the smallest cello they could give a child. <laughs> I feel like, you know, when you like major in music in college, they want you to know how to play everything. But when you're a kid, they're like, you really need to just focus on one thing, which really made me kind of bristle. Yeah. I spent like my whole adolescence playing music and in youth symphonies and really thought for a period of time that my job was going to be professional musician. Oh, wow. And I was out last night with someone I went to college with whose older brother went to sort of music conservatory and music grad school and is now playing in the pit orchestra of 1776. And I was like, well, that's the coolest job I've ever heard of. Oh, wow. I remember you wrote a piece, oh, I was probably eight, nine years ago, um, on School of Rock, and you talked about your experience, like, playing drums in the market. You did something in high school. I did, like, auxiliary percussion, so I kind of played every percussion that wasn't drums. The triangle? So, like, marimba, vibraphone, but then, like, timpani and orchestra, and as well as, like, all the stuff you wouldn't think is hard, but is actually really technical, like, triangle and tambourine. Very multidimensional. Yeah, and I played all through college, too. I really... And so, like, I just love classical music. I know more about it than I do any contemporary music, and fellow Brightwell writer Spencer Williams is like, it's so horrible when you call, like, like regular music, contemporary music. <laughs> well, I love it. Yeah. So I, I started writing about classical just because it's like all I really know about. And then at some point you got involved with actually getting on the radio and talking about it. Yeah, I got, I DM slid okay. from an NPR producer who was just like someone who was reading the column. And then I started going on Here and Now yeah. out of Boston. Which I love listening to those. It's so good. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's not on like filling in this guest spot. It's like when they're having a slow news week, they're like, can you jump on and talk about something for 10 minutes? I'm like, easy. Yeah. I mean, I really miss Veronica. It feels weird to do this without her, but I'm also really glad that we get to have you uh, slot in and use your classical music now. And we also have another guest we're just about to introduce who also knows a ton about music. So it's a very music-centric episode today, which is uh, wonderful and appropriate for the show. And this month's theme over on the site is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We're doing a whole issue dedicated to those three wonderful things and how they all work together. Joining us today is Sydney Urbanek, a writer and editor based out of Toronto. Uh, she's also a contributing editor at Brightwall Darkroom. Uh, we love having her on board here. As a former graduate student in cinema studies, she writes mostly about things at the intersection of pop music and moving images. 
and especially how the music and film worlds are tangled together. Some of that writing happens in her newsletter, Mononym Mythology, where she often goes long on different pop stars in their work and things like MTV and the visual album. Welcome, Sydney. Thank you very much. This is very fun. Yeah. Cool. Well, and one of the things that's really awesome about having Sydney on, especially for this time, and one of the reasons we sought her out for this one, is that today's film, Amadeus, is actually one of, if not the favorite film of yours? It's my like literal favorite film. Like I've sort of gone back and forth on that in the past, but um, if I made you a list, it would be number one. Number one. All right. It would be accurate to call this my favorite film. <laughs> is it been ensconced in the top spot for a long time? It's always been, let's say, in the top three. And then, you know, in the last few years for whatever reason I've done a lot of rewatching of it mm -hmm. this is a film that in my household gets rewatched like every few months I often put it on when I've had some alcohol <laughs> because I've seen it so many times now when I watch it I try to like experiment with different states of mind alteration mm -hmm. so like you know last time I watched it I was a little high <laughs> you know and the time before that I was a lot high and like <laughs> try to switch it up now because every time you do that you get new things out of this movie I bet <laughs> Yeah, every time I watch this movie, it's about something else. And part of that is because it's such a rich film. And then part of that is because I'm doing various drugs. <laughs> <laughs> Can I say that? Of course. Okay, good. This is the episode for it. I was just thinking of when Fran used to write, I mean, this was years ago too. She used to write some column, not for us, where she would get high and watch movies. And those, those were also real treats to read. I know. I can't do that anymore. I fall asleep if I get stoned. Yeah, that's the problem as you get older. Yeah. It's like, let's put on a movie high. And then it's like, this is great. I'm asleep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the key is to have seen it already like three dozen times and then it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. And Sydney, do you uh, have a background? In, did you grow up playing piano? Do you have any kind of musical background or how did you get into like music in general? I know it's a big focus of your writing. Oh, wow. Big question. I've always been super into music just as a listener. I did grow up playing piano. I had no choice. By around in, in high school, I was still being forced to play piano, but I suddenly started to seek out like pop music and play the sheet music that my mom had in various books mm. instead of my piano homework and suddenly piano was fun so much better yeah so I actually play piano all the time I don't have one in my apartment but my parents have one and anytime I'm asked to go and like dog sit house sit that's what I'm doing cool. I've always loved music but more so than that I always love movies it's funny because I think I am seen as like a music writer and it makes sense to me but it's more that I write about musicians mm. and what they do visually I have sort of like a superficial knowledge of music as something that you hear listen to but mm -hmm. more so I'm writing about people who make music who also happen to do things like produce brand control documentaries and make hour-long music videos and and that kind of thing and do like star vehicles cool yeah and and we'll uh put some links to some of your pieces also for uh, some of the stuff from your newsletter because it's really fantastic is it a newsletter is that the right way to call it that or a blog yeah, or a, yeah. okay newsletter, yeah, it's a yeah. newsletter. and uh and you've also written for plenty of other outlets too so there's a lot of good sydney stuff out there to read if you're if you're into what she's saying today or, or like some of her thoughts on music oh well, thank you very much <laughs> i want to add one more thought as a non-parent, I say good to force a child to play piano. I force both my kids to do it. <laughs> good for discipline. In this regard, kids should have no rights. <laughs> it's. I think it's really good. I don't, it was good for me. I don't know. I mean, all three of us were forced to play piano, it sounds like, growing up. And, and I don't think any yeah. of us are mad at our parents about it. I, I transitioned to guitar around 14 or 15. I couldn't have done that without a background in the piano stuff. And so, I mean, I just, I'm really thankful to it. I'm really thankful I still know how to play it now as an adult. So I just think it's a great skill. And also, yeah, the, the practice sucks, but you appreciate it later for building kind of good, good mental habits <laughs> and having to do stuff you don't want to do in life, which is so much of adulthood. So, so this is the part where normally Veronica gives a wonderful synopsis. So this time she was kind enough to write it in so hello veronica whenever you hear this uh, and thank you for writing this wonderful little synopsis here for amadeus which i will jump into and then we can take off and discuss how much we love this movie so amadeus directed by czech new wave legend milos foreman uh, was released in 1984 based on peter schaffer's 1979 stage play set in 18th century vienna it travels citizen kane style through a series of flashbacks prompted by interview. Young priest Father Vogler goes to take composer Antonio Salieri's confession in a psychiatric institute, where Salieri recounts his decades-long one-sided rivalry with prodigy-turned-alcoholic genius 
Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Salieri is played by F. Murray Abraham. Mozart, a.k.a. Wolfie, is played by Tom Hulse. Both were nominated for Acting Academy Awards, and F. Murray Abraham won. So we've got a not-quite-biopic musical period film about obsession and opera, wigs and cleavage, artistic integrity versus economic precarity, and who in life, death, or art gets the last laugh. And thank you, Veronica. I love those synopsis she writes every time. <laughs> so we're just going to jump in here. Uh, let's see. We got uh, anyone have a place they wanted to start at? Or do you could start with the cleavage? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Not unlike Sydney. I don't know if I'd go so far to make it one of my favorite movies. But every time I rewatch it, I'm like, this might be the best movie of all time. Mm-hmm. That's why I feel when I'm watching it. Yeah, it's sort of unimpeachable. And I love that it's this kind of perfect blend of enough historical accuracy and enough enough historical fudging to be legitimately entertaining while also vaguely historically appropriate. I think there's too much pressure now put on historical accuracy such that movies don't get to have fun anymore. And this is like the ideal blend of both. I love how modern it feels. It does feel extremely modern, even though, geez, how old is it now? Four, almost 40 years ago. Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it was based on, I should say, it was based on the, the play uh, from 1979, but also the, I know the history went back even farther into like the, the 1800s. Uh, there was like some play that was written or some something using the same conceit of uh, Amadeus versus Salieri. That's kind of where it started. Yeah, with a famous like Rimsky-Korsakov score. That's the main thing I know, which is also weird to think about this coming out when another very old composer could write music for it that these guys have been gossiped about for forever. Yeah, and, and in the historical record, there's actually not much since that there was even any real rivalry between them at all. So, I mean, they even collaborated together at various points. So, yeah. I don't know. It's fascinating that uh, you could live your life and then be known forever for something completely made up about you. Thus is the fate of Salieri. The way that we talk <laughs> about the past, it'd be impossible to know who secretly hated who. That's true. They, they might, they probably did have plenty of this. But I, I do like the idea of using that as a jumping off point to explore all the things that the movie explores. And we should say, uh, Schaffer actually wrote the screenplay based on his own stage play. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I, I love some of the people that have played that role over the years. But uh, my favorite was that Mark Hamill <laughs> had played it. And also that he really wanted to be in this movie. But Milos uh, appropriately said, yeah, no one's going to just not think of you as Luke Skywalker in 1984. So he wasn't able to get the role. I don't know. It's, it's fascinating. Kenneth Branagh almost had the part of Tom Hulse as well, which is fascinating. One of my favorite things I was reading when I looked this up is that Simon Callow, who's in the film, this is Simon mm-hmm. Callow's film debut, but he too played Mozart at one point on stage. He was the he was the original. He was the one that Milos saw in the performance that made him want to direct the movie. Maybe one of my all-time favorite actors. Really? He's great. Yeah, I'm obsessed with Simon Callow. He's a freak. Yeah. He is someone who will just like surprise show up in things that I'm watching. Like this morning, I'm watching Maurice because it's leaving Criterion Channel and like he just shows up. Oh. I'm like, there he is. <laughs> I knew he was going to show up. <laughs> oh, well, Merchant Ivory guys are addicted to him. That movie's amazing. They love him, yeah. But yes, back to this film. <laughs> it's interesting because I've definitely told this story elsewhere on the internet, but so my family is actually from Vienna. Oh, really? Yeah, and so this was one of those movies <laughs> like... Sound of Music and certain other things like in this ballpark that were shown to me as like a small child Mm. with the goal of like teaching me (laughs) about Vienna and like about the culture and the history. And of course, the ironic part is it's largely fabricated in terms of the actual like interpersonal narrative and all that. Sure. But yeah, this was a film that was shown to me growing up and that I've kind of just like taken in my own directions and I watch for very different reasons now. I wrote a piece for the site on Marie Antoinette. Yeah, great piece. Thank you. One of the things that makes it really interesting is the way that it would go on to influence other kind of revisionist biopics like that film. Um, Like Sofia Coppola decided to do every actor's actual accent in that film because of the way that they had done that in Amadeus. There's this really great Jason Schwartzman quote about it. And I wonder if there was some like Coppola family event where all the cousins just like got together and watched (laughs) this movie because he was like you know when you're a kid you don't really think about people from the past like laughing like something as basic as that but then you hear your own accent (laughs) (laughs) Mozart speaking in your own accent laughing and suddenly you're like hey you know that's such a good point yeah yeah that's one of the things that I love about this movie is how many other movies it's kind of connected to. That's one that's happening like at the same time. It's happening contemporaneously, the two stories, because there are so many like 
Joseph II, who's obviously one of, one of the main characters in this film, like he had so many siblings, including Marie Antoinette, including like uh, Maria Carolina, who is like, a you know, like Ferdinando and Carolina, that Lena Wertmuller film is about his sister, that kind of thing. There's enough siblings that you can just do this whole like cinematic universe, right? Yeah. The Mozart cinematic universe, the MCU. When did you first see this film? Um, I, I mean, much like Sydney, I grew up with it, yeah. not to connect to my Vienna heritage, but uh, just because <laughs> we had a big musical family. And I'm old enough that we grew up, at least for the first, or I grew up at least for the first few years of my life, um, with actual like LP records being the main way we listen to music. So my mom, you know, still thankful to this day for this, but she just got one of those Time Life series of like the great composer records or whatever, something like that. So every every night uh, we would just kind of gather up by these big, huge speakers in a room and she would put on these records. And uh, so we would listen to Chopin or Schubert or Mozart or whatever. So it was always just kind of a part of the fabric of my childhood was hearing classical music. I didn't realize most people either didn't listen to it or had a problem with it until I was probably 10 or 11. Because in our house, it was just a normal thing. I've also, I think, talked before about I wasn't really allowed to watch any movies that were not rated PG until like last year. <laughs> Thankfully, uh, at least in 1984, this, which I guess we should have mentioned, um, this was released as a PG rated movie that was about 25, 30 minutes shorter than the director's cut, which I think is about the only one available now. So we saw it sands the uh the topless scene and other things like that uh, it was rated pg so i was able to see it and compared to a lot of pg movies this is definitely probably i could feel comfortable saying the best pg rated movie of all time so uh we just watched it a lot and i just kind of yeah i just feel like i can't even tell you the first time that i watched it i just it goes back in my head as something i've always watched and anytime it came on anywhere i would i would always take the chance to watch it even if it was just jumping into the middle because there's there's really i mean the the craft and the artistic level that this thing is operating on just even aside from how good the story is dramatically it's just it's such a high level that even if you know you're five or six you don't really know about all the things that it's doing with diegetic and non-diegetic music all this other fancy you know cinematic stuff all you know is just like this just feels like something that is so good i just want to keep watching it and i don't even fully know why so that was always amadeus for me and then you know just the music and the just the feeling of it is really connected to my childhood so i think i get a little nostalgic hit in addition to all the other stuff i get from it watching it now in my 40s so what about you friend also as a kid ah it's funny because the PG cut, I'm sure, is probably what I saw up until I was maybe in my early 20s. But it's a very not-for-children PG movie and mm -hmm. how adult the themes are. I remember being quite afraid of it the first time I saw it. Ooh. Because that opening sequence in the asylum was like quite frightening. And I was probably like seven. But this was a big childhood staple. It was one of my dad's favorite movies. This is a movie where I think I like started to pay attention to the way that like sound and editing could be used to like make you laugh or sort of freak you out because I remember being quite scared for the opening scene of the film like I was waiting to get to him being you know carried to the hospital because I was like yeah. okay now the movie's funny because like this is the comedy that I watched with my family about Mozart but I remember very clearly that it was one of those like Titanic it was one of those like two tape VHS boxes Unlike Titanic, I don't remember like where the cutoff was in the narrative. Oh, yeah. But I think it's the same deal where like I would have grown up watching like the theatrical cut and then all of a sudden I watched the movie as an adult and I happened to see the director's one and this that topless scene you mentioned, Chad. I was thinking like, did I watch this as a kid? Like I'm sure I would have <laughs> remembered if I had. And then you realize it's actually like, <laughs> I think cause that's a pretty ugly scene. Mm, yeah. Like on a spiritual level, realizing like the film is darker than I had remembered it yeah. um, and not just like a comedy about Mozart where like people eat fancy looking food and like <laughs> there's laughter and there's music and there's you know ballet yeah and I should have said too I mean once I heard you guys talk about it of course my my real memory kicked in I was like yeah that, that movie it also did freak me out I grew up in a really religious household too so a lot of these themes were yeah I was I was the Salier freaked me out he probably was my stand-in for like the the devil in my mind for a while <laughs> That, that's definitely a key part of it too. And it that scene that that was added, I mean, there's a few scenes added in to the director's cut, which I think, uh, let me see, it was released in 2002. So for for 18 years, there was not a director's version. And it wasn't, uh, according to, to Milos, there's no studio pressure to cut it. He just said something about, you know, hey, we were already asking a lot of an audience before we knew how popular it was going to be. And the last thing we want to do is say, okay, here's three hours of this, you know, period piece. So he could have put it out originally like that. He just thought it was not the right thing. But then he added this stuff back in. But the, the scene specifically with, with Salieri and Mozart's wife, playing it out in this longer version where it is, like Sydney said, just spiritually like, ugh. 
leaves an awful feeling in your stomach. But it does. It changes, I think, some of that dynamic because it helps explain, explain their relationship for the rest of the movie when you see what he was actually proposing in exchange for some of these things. So I'm not aware of another movie where the director's cut came out, you know, 18 years later and then became the de facto, that's all anyone watches. Like I couldn't even find the theatrical cut on streaming anywhere. So Yeah, or there's not some disputed thing where, you know, the studio took it away. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, there's no controversy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about Milos Forman other than his movies, but it feels like he's a kind of a chill dude where he's like, yeah, let's just make this palatable for the audience and see how that goes. He didn't seem to have a lot of the, the neurotic hangups of, you know, these people that are always fighting with the studios or whatever. And he was, we should say, immensely successful already. I mean, he'd already done One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Ragtime did not take off probably the way people thought it would, but I'm sure the studios trusted him to do whatever he wanted at that point, so. It's very interesting when you're a kid and you're watching a movie. You might not care about behind the scenes anecdotes. You might not know about how like movies get financed and they get produced and they get cast and all that stuff. And then you re you learn as an adult that like this movie that means so much to you almost didn't get made or they had trouble mm -hmm. getting it made. I find the fact that they were really worried about this movie because it was this huge um, period piece and just as MTV was kind of like finding its real groove fascinating because to me it feels like it's like of this moment where it's only a few years you know prince is a big deal and he's you know sartorially referencing the same era the new romantics had all been doing that but that video that you had popped into the chat of the, the orion oh yeah, um, yeah thing was so interesting their promo yeah they were a fairly small studio i think at the time I don't, i'm not really sure of the reason they didn't have a traditional marketing budget or campaign so they're like how can we do something cool here so they made this rock video where they had was it david lee roth who's like conducting air quotes these music video clips of pretty much any star that was on mtv for that whole year even all the way to like annie lennox and devo and all this other kind of stuff just quote again dancing to a mozart song intercut with clips from amadeus so they this was before youtube was apparently this uh kind of mythical thing that people had always wanted to see and now of course with youtube everyone sees it whenever they want to but it's really interesting because they were trying to make that connection directly to like hey let's modernize this let's make this a hip kind of a amadeus is the rock star of you know his time what do you guys think about the mozart character i mean for me i think i grew up just thinking this was mozart but i don't know did you guys have a picture of mozart as kind of a stuffy composer classical guy before this or was this kind of always cemented as mozart was this guy with this crazy possibly not really giggle giggle it's possible that I saw this before I ever was able to like visually conceptualize Mozart otherwise. I'm the same, yeah. But I also think there was a period of my life, probably in my early teens, where I just assumed everyone from the past was serious. Yeah. <laughs> I think the like proliferation of like people from history, they're just like us, really did not become popular or interesting until... I don't know. There was more time to look on Wikipedia or something like that. As someone who listens to a lot of classical music, I've never really been drawn to the music of Mozart. It took me a really long time to get into him. I much prefer Romantic Era classical, which comes maybe a hundred years later. Same. It wasn't until I actually went to Salzburg on vacation and went to the Mozart house. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. And going to the Mozart house was this like huge revelation for me and my relationship to Mozart. What is the Mozart house? Oh, it's just where he lived in Salzburg when he was there. Like as a kid or as a... Uh, no, as an adult. Where he actually wrote some of the stuff? So, I mean, he was going back and forth between Vienna and Salzburg a lot, but I think a lot of the home life, the not traveling, touring, rock star life was cemented in Salzburg, I believe. Wow, cool. And they have a lot of letters between him and his wife. And I think it was actually like seeing those letters and seeing the translations that really both humanized him and made me realize how much he was. I mean, I think I was like 26 or 27 when I was there and reading letters from like a 26 or 27 year old Mozart yeah. that are really funny and mundane. And I was like, oh, this was really just like a young guy who happened to be a genius. And it really recontextualized how to listen to his music. I feel like I appreciate it much more now. It's funny because you've just reminded me that I've also been to the Mozart house <laughs> in Austria. Like there's this whole cottage industry around Mozart and like, what can we do with like his image and his history? Every sibling of his, like their house is a museum too. Like everything about him is, you know, it's on mugs. It's everywhere. There's so much merch. <laughs> so much merch. And tchotchkes you can get. Yeah. And in part, that's because like he's one of the like Austrian figures who you can do that with. Like, for example, you're not going to do this with Hitler. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it's Mozart, and then it's, like, Empress Elizabeth of Austria, like, Sisi, and that's it. They've got <laughs> maybe Freud. Less mug-friendly, I think, Freud is. I've got a, a mug, uh, a Freud mug. 
up, so I have that. Oh, oh. well, forgive me then. <laughs> I, I had not taken you into account. Vienna is also one of those places, the way New York City is, where a lot of the people who came there to make work were not from there. So I think Austria gets to boast about Mozart because he is kind of a hometown hero, like you said, who mm-hmm. who came and was grown locally. Locally sourced, yes. <laughs> to come back to what you said, Fran, about being like a 26, 27-year-old, thinking about this man who just was born a genius and had to live with that. One of the things I really think is interesting as an adult about this film is the fact that Salieri is the person that has to like actually work at his talent. There's that scene where he basically pledges his like industry and his chastity to God because he needs all that energy to make his work instead and then Mozart is sort of like the counterpart to that who just like wakes up a genius and doesn't have to work at anything he does and you see those sort of two archetypes in like any creative industry this might be sort of a weird leap but like book smart <laughs> you know how in book smart I don't know if you've you've both seen that but where oh yeah, yeah. you get to the end of high school and you've like done your homework and you've gone home and you've stayed out of trouble but all the people who were like partying through high school and all the hedonists also got the same degree so it's like wait a second I didn't get anything out of this that's different from what these guys got out of it and that's kind of like the role that Salieri plays here like Mm. Jesus Christ like this kid just shows up and like he doesn't have to pledge his industry and his chastity he's just brilliant and he gets all of like all these things handed to him because of that and I think this is a really interesting film about like being a creative person and having to like navigate all the like most emotionally unhealthy aspects of being in that kind of world because it's really like the ultimate like professional jealousy film yeah exactly well and i think it it captures so well i guess the phrase i always come up against is you're running up against the limits of your own talents and abilities in, in such a way where i don't know about you guys but anytime i do anything in my life that i feel like i'm decent at it's not too long before you run into someone who's amazing at it and you just want to be like what the i i give up this sucks like i'm never going to be that person and then to find out that that person is you know in mozart's case a lot of it was just uh, depending on your belief system god given or universe given or magic or whatever he was just born with it i mean he he wrote his first symphony at nine. His first concerto was like six. This is not a normal person by any <laughs> by any definition of that word. And to come across something when you've been working, I mean, imagine working for, you know, whatever you do that you feel like you do well, 20, 30, 40 years dedicating your whole life to it. And then this just kind of wonder kid just shows up, doesn't have to work at it at all and can write circles around you or sing circles around you or kick a soccer ball circles around you, whatever, whatever field you want to take it into. It's a deeply frustrating thing. But at the same time, I guess what I love about Amadeus is how it gets the duality of both. Like it doesn't just make Salieri hate him. He hates him. And he's also so aware that this is the most beautiful music he's ever heard. So he can't just hate him or try to take him down because he also wants this music and wants to hear more of this like he's almost addicted to how good Mozart's music is. There's also that great scene where his dad's visiting and then they go masked to that ball and Salieri's sort of sort of like incognito in that moment and then has to witness the very like humiliating impersonation of himself as performed by Mozart. That's a wonderful moment yeah. Like that's another scene that's Sofia Coppola like just cribbed the mass ball thing like incognito a bunch of famous people intermingling with the city people have been gossiping about each other <laughs> it's the dawn of time it's true I've certainly been in those things when you're observing and you think you're being all sneaky and then you hear something you just wish that god I wish I was not uh eavesdropping on any of this right now and that's a very specific feeling but also it's a very humorous scene because he nails musically Salieri's character in like I don't know 20 seconds uh, of just playing it like as soon as he plays that even though we haven't heard that piece we're like oh yeah that's exactly how Salieri's music would sound as as compared to you know someone like Mozart. I mean, it's just dead on. I don't think we talked about the fact that Tom Hulse learned how to play piano for this, but mm. he actually also in that same scene when he's playing upside down, that's that's really him playing that, which I think is is worth mentioning. That's not an easy thing to do for someone like me who plays the piano and, and he had to learn it all. But yeah, that's a fascinating, great, wonderful scene that encapsulates a whole lot. This movie is really just about like being alive, like not to sound <laughs> extremely, you know, like that, but it is like it's. Um... How do you mean that? Well, what you just said, like, you know, everyone's been there and there's so Mm. many moments like that in the film where, you know, like the scene where he composed the march that he wants to perform and the emperor performs it. And then Mozart comes in and basically starts picking it apart. And you can he plays that so well, like Salieri in that moment where it's just like (laughs) 
he can feel people like throwing tomatoes at him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? And even the comedy of that march as he's working on it in the minutes leading up to Mozart. <laughs> like just like that's how it sounds when my kids used to practice when they were young. And it's like, oh, yeah, bad piano playing is very funny to me. I think that's like one of the more devastating parts about the like impersonation scene is the idea that like if Salieri believes that God has chosen Mozart to be like his vessel, mm. then anytime he laughs or there's laughter, it's God laughing yeah. at Salieri. And I think that's one of the things that really makes that masked ball number. To extend that further, like this is what God thinks of your piano playing or composition skills. <laughs> you know, right. If that's the voice of God and he's playing you like that, you're like, oh God. But I like that idea of there's a lot of real world connections to feelings that we all feel like to our point we've been making, that this is a modern movie and that we can all identify with it, even though you know set 300 years ago humans don't change that much yeah even something like i mean i don't relate to this on a personal note so if my dad's listening he should know that but just the <laughs> idea that like everyone is a fan of mozart in the city of vienna and the only person whose love that he can't really feel if even if he has it is his father's and like that's such a real thing for so many people and like that gets played so well in this film where there's just like a different energy emanating from that character his father compared to everyone else where everyone else is looking at him like he's like you know a child of god that's the you know the whole theme in this movie but his dad's like well he's actually my trained monkey and i wish that he were more of an adult and i wish that he would do this and that and that's very familiar for i think a lot of people Absolutely. not me though dad so <laughs> don't worry about it <laughs> we've thrown out a lot of superlatives about how good amadeus is but i think one of the things it does best teaches us how to listen to music in a really wonderful way that doesn't feel like teaching which i think is a big part of its success for kids i had piano teachers that could not explain music to me in this way that Salieri does in just a couple of scenes that changed pretty much how I felt about and viewed music for, well, I mean, still to this day. It comes from listening to things like, you know, the, the, the famous Oscar clip, I'm sure it was used. Uh, if not, it should have been. Um, when he's talking about hearing the oboe coming in and uh, then the clarinet swallows it up. And it just hearing that and, and the way that Foreman puts that on the screen and the way that uh, F. Murray Abraham acts that scene in his old man makeup that I think is one of the best makeup jobs ever. It wasn't like Leonardo DiCaprio as G. Edgar Hoover. I mean, it was really, really good. I mean, I, yeah, I got little chills on my arm just even talking about that scene. And I've probably seen it 500 times, that one scene. I mean, that's maybe I should watch that every morning waking up because it just makes you fall in love with music. But it's through the eyes of this guy who has every reason to hate the person that wrote this music. And he still can't hate it because it's so beautiful. So that switched me into a Mozart man. I was not a Mozart person growing up, but that made me a Mozart guy. I think it's so important that we get a lot of audience shots in this movie too mm. so that you understand the ways in which that like going to the opera in the past was like going to a big concert now yeah and that was a place to see and be seen and to really like have a wild night out where you'd either see something maybe potentially dramatic that would move you and shake you to your core or these like light operas or operettas that were really kind of vulgar or silly in a way that you weren't allowed to be in your otherwise and there was like controversy too like oh yeah you can't you can't have ballet in the opera i don't even know what rule that's from or you can't talk about what was it was it Figaro or was it yeah I mean like who who would ever even think these were controversial uh, <laughs> things at any point even it's sort of at the start of the film the ways in which opera is changing where the idea of doing an opera in German yeah whereas it had always been done in Italian is considered like revolutionary or vulgar in its own way whereas we just think of you know there's that great line in, in the loop of like opera just being foreign vowels <laughs> but that they are really thinking about what makes opera opera and they sound like you or I I'm glad we found Finally got you uh, to get an in the loop reference on pod. That's good. It just runs in my head <laughs> nonstop. I know. I know. Ever since I've known you, I know you always drop those in there. I love it. Another thing, you know, like that scene, Chad, you were talking about where he's talking about the, the different instruments coming in. Mm. Another one that I didn't really think too hard about until I was watching this movie as an adult was the opening sequence where he's being shuttled to the asylum yeah. hospital slash asylum because you know as much as we're talking about how this film breaks everything into really simple language in a way that's great and effective this film does really interesting things with like diegetic sound and non-diegetic sound whether it's like happening in the world of the film whether it's in someone's brain whether it's like you know around them and in that scene like it's not just that they've attached like a mozart needle drop if you will to this journey it's also there's like an implication that in this very undignified, maybe even humiliating moment for Salieri, Mozart's music is like flowing out of this ballroom um, where people are dancing to it. So it's just like this extra like... <laughs> 
Shiv in the kidney. <laughs> like that's so fascinating to me the way that it's like it's a score, but it's also is it really a score if it's the music that Vienna is being soundtracked by for decades, right? Exactly. I think this film does really interesting things with that. And also the just the idea that like every every music cue in this film is Mozart. Yes. Like when you are prompted to laugh at something, prompted to be upset about something like there was obviously sound design that happened, but every like artistic choice on that front, it's Mozart that did that like hundreds of years ago. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think that part's really, really interesting. There's like this sort of spectral presence that he has in the film. Yeah, I heard it referred to, uh, which I think is really, really astute. Last night there was a making of Amadeus. Um, I think it's available on YouTube. It's really good. But they referred to the music as literally the third lead actor. So you got you know, Mozart's Salieri and then Mozart's music. And what a gift to be able to pull that out of the out of the toolkit to put into your movie. So but yeah, I think I think that you said that really well. I, I really love how the music is used, which sounds like the most obvious thing, but it enhances everything. And I think that might be part of what we were talking about when we were like, we just loved watching this growing up. And it's one of those movies where also um, I feel smarter every time I watch it or like I'm a smarter person because I'm watching it. I don't know if that makes sense, but uh, it makes you feel like you're watching a culture thing, but it's so entertaining that it doesn't feel like eating your vegetables. <laughs> how I always think of Amadeus. There's nothing patronizing in it. Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, it treats children like adults. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in part that's helped because of like the youthfulness of that Mozart character. Yeah. That he's allowed to be like crass and vulgar and silly exactly. amidst all this. But what do we think about Hulse as an actor? Pulse, I feel like also just kind of a staple of my childhood is someone who loved (laughs) watching and rewatching the VHS of Hunchback of Notre Dame. (laughs) That's a voice I feel like I know very well from the 1990s. Yes, our childhoods were in different eras because I knew him as the ne'er-do-well uh, dad in Parenthood with Steve Martin. Oh, funny. <laughs> That's a movie I saw as a kid, but I have like absolutely no memory of. But I, w- I was really obsessed with Hunchback. Is he the voice? He's Quasimodo. He is? Okay, I didn't even yeah, know Yeah, he's that. the titular Hunchback. Yeah. <laughs> that was the way that like my dad got me to watch Amadeus initially. Oh, wow. being like, this is that guy you love. That's funny. But what do we think of how he actually played Mozart? I mean, is that did that work for you guys? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> arguably, I mean, I think it's arguably the better performance, even though I understand why. Oh, really? Let's fight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> F. Murray Abraham and the gravitas and the, oh my God. It's like a whole nother level than anyone else in the movie, in my opinion. It's possible that Hulse moves me so much in part because there are so few cinematic performances from him because he's kind of just stepped away from that part of his career. So it really does kind of feel like this lightning in a bottle type of thing. But I think it's the much harder and much more elusive and perhaps more complex role because Mozart is this crude, sometimes brash asshole. I think he can be mm-hmm. quite flippant and inappropriate, but he's so good hearted, I think, and also shows the way in which people who mean well can also sometimes be horrible with and without knowing it. What about you, Sydney? Are you a Hulse fan on this one? This, I mean, I don't know if this is like a little out there, but I was actually thinking about <laughs> Tony Bennett says this thing of like duets Mm -hmm. where the key to like a successful not not just like a duet in the musical sense although that's what he's referring to here but just pairing two people together the key to a successful one is that one is kind of like all over the place more bursting at the seams and the other is kind of buttoned up and like the rock of the duo and I think that I was thinking about like which of the two lead performances I prefer and then I just landed on the fact that it works because they're so different and they're such different like different pillars that represent very different things and lifestyles and you know moral codes and ways of being and that that's what makes this movie work is the fact that like you have Mozart and you have Salieri and they're not alike in any way shape or form except that they both love music and sometimes have crushes on the same women and that's about it I also love that like that I don't remember what her name is in the film but like the you know this prima donna character she's very much doing this Marilyn thing in the film. Oh. I know Fran and I have both had to watch this n- new Netflix doc in the last few weeks, but... What doc? Oh, the, the worst documentary of all time. <laughs> There's this new, like, true crime Marilyn doc, but it does happen to feature a lot of, like, footage of her performing in performance mode. Oh. And when I was re-watching this film, again, it might come back to the, the edible, <laughs> but this prima donna character... Does anyone know her name? <laughs> Katerina. Okay. Right. Um, She's doing like a Marilyn thing. And I don't know how to explain it except to say that just go back and watch her scenes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What is a Marilyn thing? She's doing this sort of like 
constructed sex pot much smarter than she would like to let on like and it comes through in the way that she's trying to inquire about Mozart without giving away too much and then she actually does that successfully for several scenes until it all suddenly comes like Mm-hmm. It all pours over when it's discovered that he's actually engaged to Stanzi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. It's like this wry, doe-eyed thing at the same time. There's even like the beauty mark. And I know that that's like a common, that was a common makeup thing. But That's true, yeah. It feels like maybe a little too coincidental to have been a coincidence. I don't know. It, it wouldn't surprise me if that actress had actually been like mm. pulling from that as a reference point. Yeah, now that you say that, I, I, I can totally see that for sure. These opera stars were like the celebrities mm-hmm. of that day. These were people of a certain higher status who were like non-political, but who you were sort of struck to see both on stage and out and about. And I guess sort of shows that like power differential yeah and also showed with that scene where she does find out he's engaged um at the end of one of those operas a lot of the class kind of differential and opinions you know when they when they drag it's a crime that we have not mentioned (laughs) elizabeth barrett yet but yeah having her on stage and then also pulling them i guess mozart's almost mother-in-law at that point but her mom onto the stage and then she faints and passes out that was all not in the original theatrical cut either or it's a, a much elongated scene here so but that's the other thing that i keep coming back to is how how much Schaffer and or Foreman gets into this movie that you're not even fully aware like it again it feels like a really good class with a really good teacher where you don't even realize that you're being taught all of this different stuff because it's really covering so much but making it highly entertaining and I think that's what I keep coming back to is how how few films can do that successfully and and keep that balance where it doesn't tip one way or the other into uh, more didactic stuff or just more purely frivolous stuff. Like, you know, to Sydney's point about a duet, there's also a duet kind of going on there too, where it's like super informative and educational, making all these points about class, music, art, creativity. And at the same time, also um, just entertains the pants off you the whole time. I mean, I just, I have a smile on my face for almost the entire movie when I'm watching it. I really am obsessed with that Elizabeth Barrage performance, which might actually be my favorite performance of any of them in the movie, just because I think it's so sympathetic and funny and not unlike Tom Hulse. She is just a really unique performer that we don't see a lot of. She is very unique. And this role was not supposed to go to her. It's not, I don't think it's her debut, but it's certainly one of her first few films. And she really carries this role and I think the love and strain of their marriage under his work and increasing debt all of which is essentially canonically true to what happened in history which was that he was running out of money and the ways in which creative work and what did make money and what didn't make money was different in the past compared to now I think of um this great George Gissing novel from the 19th century called New Grub Street which is about Hmm. it's sort of an inner look at the publishing industry in London during the 1880s and the ways in which all those writers fictional writers were mean to each other and striving for each other it's there's more characters so it's not quite Amadeus-y but those guys are always complaining about how they have to write novels because they make money but all they really want to do is write essays in the newspaper and I was like (laughs) okay so it's completely different (laughs) than what it is now where people have to write their little essays for the newspaper so one day they can write one book it's this kind of thing of like well you know an opera is going to make you a lot of money but a requiem won't and you need to really think about what brings home coin for your family with elizabeth barrage she's also in this making of doc because uh, it's her 20 or 30 years later in this documentary um i haven't seen every movie but I, I don't remember ever seeing her again well so she's married to kevin corrigan oh wow one of my favorite kind of famous celeb couples yeah and they both show up actually in please give oh the nicole holofsener movie because she loves Corrigan, who's really good in walking and talking, and then they show up as like a bickering married couple in Please Give, and they're very they're very funny together. Yeah, I saw that movie, uh, and I probably didn't even connect that that was the, the lady in Amadeus. Wow. Oh, I screamed. <laughs> One for guys like me. They, their daughter is also quite active on TikTok. I wish I did not know this, but there was a very funny one of her in film school being like, another class where I have to watch my mom topless. And I was like, who is this teenager? And then I was like, this is very funny that she would have to keep watching this movie in film school. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we should have said to, to Fran's earlier point, um, it was Meg Tilly. Mm-hmm. And one day before her first scene is out on the street playing soccer with some kids and wherever they're filming, tears 
up her knee or tendons or something. And they've said she can't do anything for five or six weeks. Budgetary wise, you know, Foreman said, well, we can't afford to wait that long. We've already got everything ready to roll. So they literally like, I mean, think about how little time Barrage had to prepare for her role versus all these other people who've been playing these characters and doing the rehearsals and, and to step into that and to step in like to this big, huge production and have to kind of carry a significant part of some of the film. It's pretty mind blowing that, that she was that was she nominated for she must have been nominated, right? I don't think so. Really? Wow. Okay. I think she's been kind of cast aside a little bit in the legacy. Yeah. Which is interesting because it's it sounds very obvious and silly, but it's such an important part of the film where like her performance is like, you know, it's like 40% boob. <laughs> At least. <laughs> At least. And she's really his, like, she's like the creative conscience mm-hmm. of the film. I mean, I don't want to be like, like any wife, but what I, I guess what I mean is she sort of, as these different things pop up, she's playing the roles of both like devil and angel on his shoulder. She's like, okay, mm-hmm. reminder that like we need money she's like a part business consultant life coach career coach and there's parts of this film where like in that first scene where they're both introduced as a couple where Salieri like clues in rather to who Mozart is in this crowd I forget that they're acting it's really fascinating to me that she was not originally slated to be the Stanzi character it's as if they had done like a chemistry test and had been practicing for weeks and it, there's something about the way that they, they feel like a real couple when they're kind of like teasing each other and they found themselves in this like separate dessert room at this event. Oh, I also think that her role as his wife feels quite unique in terms of Mozart's relationship with his actual wife, Castanz, and how different it is from other composers' relationships with their wives, both in that era and after the fact. Many of them did not have good working relationships with their significant others and often, I think, tried to spend as much time as possible away from them, usually married for some kind of economic reason and then either, you know, abandoned them at a summer house or divorced them really quickly and that their relationship really felt like a partnership Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and that she ideas were bounced off of her and that she was a fan of his and that was where my mind was blown at the Mozart house was just how mundane how mundane and friendly his letters to her were that sort of veered back and forth between like oh we went from here to here today we ate this it wasn't good then rehearsal very boring kind of checking in letters to these really kind of otherwise lewd letters very lewd and and really playful too rhyming of words Words and yeah. I would have to think that this is not one-sided in that regard, that these were <laughs> letters that were welcome. And it's nice that you see that. I feel like a lot of other composers whose work I really love, like Tchaikovsky, I mean, fully hated his wife. Subject of a film at Cannes this year. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Tchaikovsky's Wife. Oh. <laughs> is the name of the film. Aptly titled. <laughs> but because the classical work that he's doing is taking up a much smaller percentage of his brain space that he is like afforded time to love Mm -hmm. and to have this relationship is also I think what drives Salieri insane. Mm. Yeah, I think Salieri is jealous about a lot of things. But um, in the real life, Salieri was married, had eight kids. He did not take a vow of chastity. So that's another interesting piece about how large portions of this are just, you know, what fits the dramatic narrative. And I think makes it a much better movie. But yeah, I was just thinking about composers' wives now. Um, I, I can't come up with any good relationship. For, I know you said they're not many, but I can't come up with any other composers that had like a successful marriage as a focus of I'm trying to think. I mean, Chopin, did he actually get married? Chopin, to- I don't know as much about but I think Beethoven and his wife, mm-hmm. okay. I just know, I think I know most of the really bad ones. Really? His immortal beloved. Or was that his wife? Was he married to her? That was not his wife, no. Oh, no, that was... <laughs> oh there you go. Okay. <laughs> Possibly it's not even true. I mean, it was just a line that he wrote into uh, one of his compositions that has always kind of been a mystery but that that movie has plenty of stuff that's not true in it I as see. well the, the gary oldman immortal beloved which was another thing i loved growing up but watching as an adult is like oh my god the difference between that and amadeus on an artistic level is enormous um but i, I still do have a, a fun spot in my heart for for immortal beloved that ode to joy scene when he's in the stars at the end is like, whew, that's a good one. I really want to see that. I've never seen that. I haven't either. Oh, oh, I, I'd, I'd highly recommend watching it, um, even just for Gary Oldman's performance. Um, but specifically when you get to the end and he's conducting the ode to joy thing and with some of the stuff they do visually there is just, that's worth watching the whole film just for that part. Cool. Also comes across that he's a huge jerk, which has always just been kind of what I thought of as Beethoven. And it's interesting that, you know, he could write such beautiful music, but also just be this pretty awful guy to be around and life which is not surprising probably for a lot of artists 
But I don't get that sense of Mozart. And I don't know if that's the real Mozart or the Amadeus Mozart, but that playful energy, like you don't see a lot of, even on on-screen depictions of, of couples in the 17, 1800s, you don't see a lot of playfulness to those relationships. And I think that there, there's almost like a, I'm sure I'm not the first to make this point, but it almost seemed like they were kids being in a relationship at a certain point, mm-hmm. as opposed to these kind of staid, you know, formal adult relationships that you often see from this time. So I thought that was a really great thing. I'm sure that was all in the play originally, but um, I thought that was a really interesting way. And I think helps modernize it a lot because we can relate a lot more to that than, you know, stuffy people wearing wigs and following court rituals or whatever. I was reading about kind of contemporary adaptations of this on stage because I feel like it's been a minute since they did it on Broadway, which it has, but there was a production in London where Jessie Buckley played that Costanz role. And I was like, that would be a really fun role to see her do. That'd be great. I like can't get over how well everything from this film grafts onto present day and vice versa. In my head, this is just, I mean, it's a one-sided feud, but it's like two feuding pop stars and it's like, it's the contemporaneous music industry and you get all the same kind of like drama and this like battle between being authentic and selling out and everything just appears. And I was laughing watching it this most recent time because even things like, you know, how we, we talk a lot now about elevated horror and how that's sort of an inherently like insulting term to the whole genre. And there's this one moment in the movie where he's like, at what does that board mean? Like elevated, elevated, like <laughs> there's so much of that in this film. Like I felt like I, I just want to kind of like chop it up into memes and then for the next two years, I'll be set. <laughs> what does he say? I'm fed to the teeth with elevated things. Something like that. Yeah. Wow. Something thing, like yeah. That. <laughs> But uh, Sydney, can you make any kind of modern analogy to like two pop stars that would be in this thing now? Have you thought about You've thought about this. You have to have thought about it. I have <laughs> thought about it and I don't think there's any like perfect equal pair. And so I, I've sort of hesitated to try and crowbar one in. But I have, I, I was thinking about it in the sense of like, sometimes in the world of, you know, music, but pop music in particular, like it's not that an artist has done something wrong or that they're uninteresting or untalented. It's just that the timing is such that someone else comes along mm-hmm. and they have the X factor and that's all it takes. And that happens a lot in the world of pop music where like one of the two will become an underdog by default. It's tricky because of the way that it's the feud is kind of like a fabrication for the most part. Sure. Yeah. I have been thinking about it. I'm okay. <laughs> I just I don't want to get yelled at by the internet if I pick two people yeah. <laughs> you know I'm sort of at risk of that yeah. at all times so yeah we're not allowed to mention Taylor Swift on this because we don't want any of that email or yeah no yeah. no I, yeah. I can imagine yeah <laughs> well the age difference is funny here too mm-hmm. we would need like sort of an elder statesman of pop and a young person of pop I mean I don't think this is a good example but there was that Mick Jagger interview that just came out where he said Harry Styles is nothing like me and all the comparisons are just kind of like <laughs> hyperbolic, which I thought was a very funny thing to say of just like, keep comparing him, but we're actually nothing alike. In that case, comparing Mick Jagger to Harry Styles, like that's not even the, the older statesman there, I think wins that one in a runaway. Yeah. Doesn't he? yeah, that's I think really it is that the older person now just kind of always wins yeah. in that. I do think there are aspects of it that you can graft onto like Madonna and Lady Gaga, Mm. not perfectly because there's a lot that's different about it. But, you know, in the sense that like one pulled herself out of, you know, modest means on not like terribly impressive vocal talent. And then there's one that just like is the natural, classically trained, classically talented talent. And I think that there's aspects of the way that they're kind of received at court Mm -hmm. and have this like it's not an entirely hostile relationship to each other but it's not entirely they're not exactly embracing each other either i think there's a lot to be read into that i've tried to do this i when i say that i've been thinking about it i've really just been slotting names in here and being like hmm i wonder if that (laughs) is anything it's more just the the idea that this film is just about being like a creative person and and having to exist in a world with other creatives whatever that means and having like a devil and an angel on your shoulder at all times yeah and you know, what that looks like. Well, and the other fascinating part to me in this movie is that Mozart's never aware that Salieri hates him. He's not aware there's a rivalry. He's not aware. I mean, it's a one-sided rivalry (laughs) where Mozart, even up at least in the movie, up till his moment of of dying, is thinking, this is a great guy who's helping me out to finish this piece so I can get money. So that's another fascinating part, too, is that 
the entire dramatic engine of the film is taking place in Salieri's head and also in his confession to this guy who woke up in the morning thinking he's just going to have a normal day hearing people talk about, you know, confessing stuff. And all of a sudden he's getting this whole huge story. Um, I, I do love Father Vogler, by the way, his reaction shots. I, I think he uh, definitely is there to help, you know, as an engine of the plot. But I also just like I like that little guy's role. And I don't even know who he is or I should know his name. But I think he does a great job as being a therapist slash uh, reactor opposite. But I still think is a, a titanic performance from from F. Murray Abraham. I think it's one of the, I mean, that to me is just capital A acting, but in a way where it's not, it's not the kind of capital A acting that drives me crazy. Man, that is a good performance. It's in those sequences that I think like the performance stands out the most to me, like with like his younger self and his older self, it's definitely the older self where he is. Mm -hmm. It's it's in the like the interactions, these like little moments between the two of them where I notice it the most, the acting. It's also funny because you'll watch something like, you know, Grand Budapest Hotel Mm -hmm. and something will be happening you know neurologically where I'm very calm watching the film and I'm like wow I'm so calmed by this voice I wonder why that is and then I'm like okay he gives great voice yeah and then I'm like okay so it's because when my brain was developing I heard this voice all the time like you know narrating a story so that's why since I watched this film like all these actors keep showing up in things like I watched put Scarface on the other day and I totally forgot that he's also in that oh yeah not for terribly long but he has a pretty a short but pretty memorable stint in that film not so much narrating it I wouldn't have disliked that I'd like him to narrate most films that exist like Mm -hmm. take the film just put F. Murray Abraham as the narrator you know it would work for any film another thing I was thinking about on this most recent watch was just yeah, he he's a very like normal looking guy. Like he has like real looking skin and like he's an interesting looking person and we're not like we don't churn actors like that out anymore. They still exist because they're older and like they are still working. <laughs> but in terms of these like up and comers that were like trying to usher in, you know, as the new movie stars there's a lot less of that, I think, across the board. Yeah. And they do exist, but they don't get hyped up the way the, like, Instagram face airbrushed ones do. Yeah, exactly. I think that's another thing that makes, like, it, the performance so great is that he's, like, he looks like a real guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I think almost they all, all of them kinda do. They all kind of do. Yeah, all of them In do. this, maybe minus Christine Ebersole, who plays Katerina, the singer. But I think she looks sort of distinctly Hollywood beautiful on purpose also. On purpose. Right, right. In the Elizabeth Barrage role, um, they did not say who this other actress was, but there was two actresses they were auditioning to be this really quick replacement once Tilly dropped out. And this is from Foreman, so I'll give him the credit, even though he did not say it in a, a wonderful PC way. But it was coming from Barrage in this interview, and she was saying that they, he thought they were both equally talented, but that one of them was too beautiful to play the part. So Elizabeth Barrage, you have the part. <laughs> So he, he purposely picked her because she, in, in her words, she was quirky. She did not look like a traditional actress. But I think he fills a lot of those roles with with that kind of thing. And, and he has a whole philosophy of, of purposely doing that because there was really big name actors. Even David Bowie was wanting to be considered for the Amadeus role at one part. Wow. You know, it's, it's crazy how many like big names were wanting to do this. This was a big script from a you know Oscar winning director already and a successful play. So a lot of and, and he purposely went about casting people that were not going to be super familiar even F. Murray Abraham, he's great. Like I continually won't shut up about, but he wasn't super well-known at the time. I just think there's a lot of choices that a director like Foreman makes. I mean, throughout his career, honestly, you know, I'm a big fan of pretty much all of his movies. Even I even thought casting Jim Carrey, you know, Man on the Moon was fantastic. He just makes a lot of really interesting directorial decisions throughout his career that his instincts are usually so, so good. Um, and I think this, this was the height of it for me. Yeah, again, all that stuff you don't think about as a kid, but as you dig into this stuff as an adult, it's just fascinating. Everything about the production of this was really fascinating to me watching that that documentary last night. So for whatever that's worth, recommend checking that out on YouTube. I will. Good. You should. <laughs> well, yeah, what I'm getting, what I'm getting from this conversation is just confirmation that this is the greatest film of all time. It has no no flaws. It is the best. Yeah. <laughs> Thoughts? I don't have flaws. I was watching this over the course of a few days, and if my roommate wasn't up to anything, he would like pop into my room to like watch a couple scenes and then yeah. like dip back out. But it's like I guess I don't really have the type of TV anymore where where I'll catch something mm-hmm. that happens to be airing. But this is the kind of thing where I feel like I'd clear the night. Yeah. If I realized I was walking in, you know, twenty minutes in or something like that. Yeah, cancel the plans. Yeah. It's Amadeus night. No, I can't think of a flaw. I just have the broken comedy brain thing of being like, uh, it's actually harder to be funnier in a movie than it is to be dramatic, which is why I'll always sort of go to bat for that Tom Hulse performance. I don't actually think that is 100% true, but I think I've been led to believe 
that it is. Well, I know that a lot of comedians always say that. And we know that they speak truth to power. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's move to last call. As listeners know, every episode we end with a wrap-up segment where we ask our guests, in this case, Sydney, for the last thing that you watched recently, and then a quick staff recommendation for something that you might put out there for people to consume this month. So the last thing I watched, I did mention it earlier, and its connection to this film is entirely coincidental. I don't know how I did that. But Ferdinando and Carolina, Mm. which is this Lena Wertmuller film from 1999. It is about another one of, you know, Joseph's siblings, the emperor, but it's sort of a similarly like silly, sexy, sumptuous uh, it was very alliterative, and that was not on purpose. <laughs> Period piece about like this exact same moment in history, more or less. I think every filmmaker should have to make like a big budget period piece that's fun and so it was fun, full of really delicious looking food. Yeah, it was fun. It was like ugh, it's such a dead horse topic at this point, but I think there's just things that we don't see all that often these days in movies in terms of just like a baseline eroticism mm-hmm. um, or anything along those lines. But this was a good one. This is not going to reach people in time for this, but it's leaving Criterion Channel at the end of the month. Well, if you're listening on the first night this episode drops, you have one day to watch it. (laughs) There you go. Go watch it. Go watch it. Yeah, staff recommendation would absolutely be Prince's Sign of the Times Mm. concert film from 1987, which I watched a couple months ago, and it has gotten under my skin in like the best way. Just a prime example of like what a concert film can be when the artist in question isn't thinking of it as just like, I'm going to do my show and you're going to film it, but rather thinking of it as like a concert film from the jump and then trying to make sure that that comes through. Those are my two movies. And I'm sure that's probably available somewhere to stream. It's currently on Criterion Channel and does not appear to be leaving. So that's that's where I would direct you. Okay, cool. And we always direct people to Criterion in general. should get a sponsorship. Yes, I was going to say Criterion. (laughs) Uh, We will happily advertise for you for free, but uh, also get in contact. We would love to be sponsored by Criterion. They're great. Okay, so that uh, that about does it for our Amadeus pod. Uh, man, definitely a great discussion. I loved having Sydney and Fran on to talk about that stuff. And that's a wrap. So thanks, Sydney, for being here with us today. And just in general, I know we've mentioned a bunch of different things you've written uh, all over the place. So why don't you tell us where we can find you and your writing online or any kind of relevant places you want us to know about and what you're up to? So the easiest one-stop place would be my Twitter because I can't log off. <laughs> but yeah, my newsletter is probably where the most of my writing happens as of late. But that link, again, is very easily findable through my Twitter. So that's probably where I would go. What is your Twitter? I'm on there at Sid Urbanek. Perfect. Go. So we can find everything that you want uh, to have people find out about you and your writing through your Twitter. It's account. all there. Yeah, it's in my link tree. You know, I keep okay. that pretty, pretty updated. Modern. I'm a very online person. So. <laughs> well, Easton, thank you for being here with us today. It was great. Thank you for having me. It's truly a pleasure because really, I don't get very many opportunities to just, you know, speak for an hour plus about my favorite movie. So. And we're glad to hear you speak about it. It's awesome. Uh, and then also a big, uh, huge thank you to Pinch Hitter and wonderful person Fran Hoffner uh, for co-hosting with me this month. Fran, it was great to have you around for another time. Also great to talk for an hour plus about, I guess, truly the best movie of all time. Yeah, I guess we, I mean, we've decided that this is the best movie of all time. So send all uh, tweets to Fran and Sid about that and let them know if you think this is the greatest movie of all time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the answer is yes, it is. And Fran, where can we find some of your wonderful and illustrious writing online? Um, well, I'm on Twitter and Letterboxd, just under Fran Hoffner. And I've picked up a little news writing gig over at Gawker. So Ooh. if you want to read about some of the worst people of all time right now, I can write about them and you can read it. Great stuff over there. Check it out, everybody. And also, Fran has written, I think we talked about last time, many, many essays for Brightwell Dark Rooms, going all the way back to 2013, which are also wonderfully worth checking out. A few quick reminders here uh, to read this month's issue. Please visit us at brightwalldarkroom.com. The theme this month is sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which is why we're talking about Amadeus here, because we thought it fit enough of those things. And you can also find us on Twitter at BWDR. This is also a good opportunity to remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you want it to just show up automatically in your feed of choice, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever, and rate and review or share it with a friend who you think needs to be reminded that this is perhaps the greatest movie of all time or with whom you could get into a disagreement about whether or not this is the greatest movie (laughs) of all time. That's another great way to share it. Also fun. Yes. (laughs) 
yeah, please make sure to do that because that helps us reach uh, more more listeners, more movie lovers like you. And the best way to support the show directly is to subscribe to brightwalldarkroom.com, which will uh, give you, in addition to being able to listen to the podcast, which is, of course, free, uh, it also gives you access to our entire 100-plus uh, issue archive and thousands of essays on all kinds of films, including, again, this month's uh, issue on sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which I think is a really killer issue so far, uh, and I'm looking forward to finishing out the month here. If you like anything about sex, drugs, and or rock and roll, uh, <laughs> this is the issue for you, and lo- lots of good writing in there, so check us out. And then also, uh, if you don't want to do that, you can also just uh, donate directly to us via our Patreon account, which is patreon.com slash brightwalldarkroom. Our theme music is composed by the one and only Chad Perman, and this podcast is produced and edited by the brilliant Eli Sands. Bye. Bye. I think almost every movie we touch on ends up having some opera connection, which is very fascinating to me. Huh. So I guess join us next month for Phantom of the Opera. <laughs>